This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you would open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're working our way through the book of James, which is just a fascinating letter uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Very practical. Every week you just won't be stretched to ask the question, how does this relate to my life? I think every section has just been very connected with where we live on a daily basis. So today what we're going to do is we're going to study verses 9 through 11 of James chapter 1, but I want to set the context, so I'm going to go, read, go back and read what came before. So I'm going to start in verse 2, and then we'll read from verse 2 through verse 11 of James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable, in all his ways. And today's passage. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we're so grateful that you speak to us. God, we today just want to say thank you that you're a, a speaking God, a God who reveals himself to his people, and we ask that you'd reveal yourself afresh to us today through the scripture. We ask your Holy Spirit to open our ears to hear your word, to open our eyes. Lord, shine light on our hearts today, that we could see what this passage says to us. And Lord, I pray as well that you would just reveal the person and work of Jesus Christ afresh to us. We love to hear the story of what you've done for us, Lord, and we pray that we would see that even in this text today. So Lord, speak to us and give us the grace to be hearers and doers of your word. Lord, I ask particularly that you would enable me to proclaim this passage full of the Spirit that I could preach truthfully in a way that will serve the wonderful folks who gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, James is addressing his third topic. So we're to verse 9. He's already to his third topic. James is a letter where he sort of bounces pretty quickly from idea to idea, sort of like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And we're now on the third topic. He started the letter talking about trials. And he basically said that, that we're to have an attitude of joy when we encounter trials, which just sounds like a crazy idea. But he says the reason we can do that is because we are to realize that walking through difficulties builds endurance. Walking through trials builds endurance. And endurance builds maturity. So God's plan to mature us is to lead us through difficulty so that we trust upon him. So we grow up as we press on in him. And thus we can have joy about the process and the prospect of maturing. He then talks about wisdom in verses uh, 5 through 8. Speaks of wisdom and he says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. So if you're in trials, you don't know what to do, ask God. Because God is eager to pour out wisdom on those who ask expectantly. So the next idea he has is this idea of wisdom and asking God for wisdom and receiving wisdom from God. And now the third topic he comes to is this subject of the rich and the poor. And what he does is he gives us these three themes pretty quickly, and they are related, we'll see in a minute. But he gives them pretty quickly. Wisdom, I'm sorry, trials, wisdom, 
rich and poor. He gives them pretty quickly, but then he goes throughout the letter and he will refer back to each one of those themes. And they'll emerge at various places in the letter. So they're kind of in an introductory way being hit here. And then later in the book, they'll be developed in various ways. So he starts with the rich and poor in this section, verses 9 through 11. And he does so with a paradox. Now, it's interesting. Last week, Dave Harvey was here, and he preached, and he sort of introduced this idea of paradox. And then the very next week, we have a passage that's built on paradox. A paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement uh, that reveals truth. So it's a true statement that's not actually a contradiction, but sort of appears to be one. So the passage Dave preached last week, he talked about the fact that strength comes through weakness. That appears to be contradictory, that I can be strong and weak at the same time, but it's not. And that, these, these idea of paradoxes are found throughout the Scripture. You know, when people curse you for your faith, you are blessed. How can you be cursed and blessed at the same time? Well, you can. That is a paradox. When, when people are Christians, we're said to be slaves of Christ. And so slaves of Christ are the freest people on earth. To live, you must die, the Scripture says. And here, the passage says that the poor person should boast in his or her high position. And the rich person should boast in his or her low position. The poor people really have something to boast in richly, and rich people really have something to celebrate about their own poverty. So he's talking about rich and poor in this paradoxical way. G.K. Chesterton said this, A paradox is truth standing on its head shouting for attention. Truth standing on its head. It's an upside-down idea. Truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. If you can imagine someone doing a handstand and yelling for your attention, you can imagine someone doing a handstand and telling you today, if you were poor, celebrate your high position. If you were rich, celebrate your low position. And so the truth is, this paradox, I believe, is screaming. This upside-down truth is screaming for our attention today. Um, on the riches of the poor Christian and the poverty of the rich Christian. So we're going to talk about two things, and then I'm going to kind of tie it together thematically at the end and try to make some application for us. Here's the first thing he addresses is the rich poor. The rich, I know it sounds confusing, but track with me here. The rich poor or the riches of the poor person, we could say. James speaks in verse 9 of the lowly brother. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The the Greek word can mean lowly, it can mean humble, it can mean poor. The NIV translates it, the brother in humble circumstances. So what kind of humble circumstances are in view here? Likely material circumstances. We're talking about a poor person with regard to their finances. Um, And the way we know that is because of the contrast. He's making a parallel contrast. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So the original hearers may have been in humble circumstance in multiple ways. They were Jews who had been dispersed by persecution. So they were probably being resisted and being persecuted, being socially ostracized. And so, therefore, they are of a lowly circumstance, but there are also many of them financially struggling. The persecution they've endured and the ostracism they've endured has incurred moves where they've had to leave their area. They have incurred perhaps loss of job because of their identification with Jesus Christ. So their persecution has certainly led them to economic uh, deprivation. They are lacking financially. So the poor Christian brother, the humble, poor, lowly Christian brother, is to boast in his exaltation. What is this idea of exaltation? Well, the NIV translates it that he he ought to take pride in his high position. The poor Christian brother or sister should take pride in his high position. Well, how can that happen? 
The idea here is that the poor person who knows Christ, we are talking about a Christian because verse 9 says the lowly brother, it's inclusive, brother or sister, that this person who knows Christ is not to take his identity from his material wealth, or in this case, his lack of wealth, but to take one's identity as a brother in Christ, that we are to take our identity in Christ. Others may look down upon the poor person, but God's assessment of the Christian person who is poor is that he is rich. For the Christian person who is poor, there is something of an exaltation that that person has received. And that exaltation should be celebrated and there should be glory in what that means. He is in a high position and that should be his boast. What is his high position? Well, this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel just pokes its head in here when it speaks of someone being exalted. The Christian has an exaltation. The poor Christian has been transferred spiritually from a position of lowliness to a position of great riches. If you are in Christ, you are greatly wealthy with a spiritual richness. Romans 8 says this, the children of God are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. That there's an an heir is one who has an inheritance. That the person who is a Christian has a glorious inheritance. God is our inheritance. The person of Jesus Christ is our inheritance. And so there is something very rich about us that, 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 that is much deeper than our external circumstances, that penetrates economic suffering, that penetrates poverty, and says to the Christian who is poor, you have been raised up to great richness in Christ. Consider this verse, 2 Corinthians 8 9. You may have heard this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he, Jesus, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's saying to all Christians, Jesus became poor. He's not talking here about financial poverty. I mean, Jesus was born uh, and, and he was laid in a manger, so he was certainly somewhat, uh, somewhat limited. Obviously, there's something of a poor setting in which he's born. But he has a trade. He's a carpenter, so likely he had a decent livelihood compared to those around him. He doesn't live his entire life as a carpenter in, in some extreme poverty. So it's not talking about physical poverty, but spiritually, Christ became poor so that we might become rich. Jesus experienced the greatest wealth imaginable. He is, he is one with God. He is in his heavenly glory. He is in dwelling um, in glorious, righteous uh, rulership with God the Father. And, and he lays that aside and takes on human form. He takes on human flesh and becomes a man. And that is a tremendous drop from great riches to relative poverty. And not only does he become man, but he goes even lower. He becomes even poorer by dying as a sacrifice for our sins. So he's not just man, he's perfect and he's man, but he takes our sins upon himself and on the cross endures the punishment, the condemnation, the judgment, the wrath of the Heavenly Father that is aimed at us for our sins. God is holy, we are sinful, and a just God, a fair God, A righteous God must punish sin. Jesus himself takes our place and endures the judgment that is due us. It is the utter, utter poverty that he is absorbing the wrath of God in our place. You talk about poor. He went as low as one could go. Why? Well, 2 Corinthians 8 says, so that we might by his poverty become rich that we could become rich in the experience of mercy and grace. Because of his great suffering, we are forgiven. All of our sins are not counted against us because they were counted against Christ. And Christ's righteousness is counted for us. It's accounted. It is credited to our account so that our account is huge. Our account is complete righteousness. When God views us, He looks at us through Jesus Christ who has credited his righteousness to us as believers. And so we are rich in righteousness. 
because of what Christ has done. We are rich in grace. We are rich in mercy. And the Bible says that if we're Christians, we are in Christ. So we are in Christ in his death. He dies for our sins. It's as if we paid for our own sins, though we haven't. He did, but we identify with him. We're in union with him, the scripture says. We are buried with him. We are raised with him to walk in a new life. Talk about riches. We have a brand new life with a clean conscience and a fresh start. As we sang this morning, his mercy is new every day. That is glorious wealth to wake up today with a day full of mercy, regardless of what our sufferings are today and physical sufferings. If you're a Christian, you are not suffering spiritually today in terms of how God relates to you. You are rich, forgiven of our sins, but we're not only, we not only identify with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, but the scripture also says he is ascended and seats, sits at the right hand of the Father. And Scripture says we are raised with Him. Set your mind, in, uh, set your heart, your mind, your affections on things above where you're seated with Christ. And so there is this great exaltation that our soul has been forgiven, our heart, we've received new life, and our future is glorious. If you are a Christian, your future will be an eternity In a new heavens and a new earth, the scripture says, where God will dwell in our midst. A place where there's no need for sun and no need for light because the very glory which emanates off Jesus Christ lights everything up. It's it's a wealth and an extravagance beyond what we can imagine because we will see the glory of Christ. And so, poor person, James says, don't draw your identity from your circumstances Or the limitations, the lack that you experience in your life. Draw your identity from your exaltation. One who's been lifted up with Christ. One who's been forgiven. One who has new life. And one who will spend eternity with Jesus Christ. It really matches, doesn't it, with what's gone on before it. When you consider, when you count it joy, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Being poor is a trial. And so as you encounter... Incur this trial, James says. Celebrate your exaltation. Celebrate the new life. Celebrate that you've been raised from death to life. Count it joy because God is at work in your life. Think of God in the midst of your difficulty. And if you don't know how to navigate, very difficult to navigate a life when you have limitations, as we saw in the video today, right? Very difficult to navigate that. So what do you do? Cry out to God for wisdom as to how to live. That's the second section. And then he goes into this particular area and speaks of the rich poor. Next, he speaks of the poor rich, or the, I'm going to call it the spiritual poverty that the rich person is supposed to glory in. Look what he says in verse uh, 9 there. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And then it says, verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation. Let the rich person boast or glory in his humiliation. Now, here's an important question. Is the person he's talking about here described as the rich a Christian or not? I think so. And I think to understand and apply this passage appropriately, we need to understand this person is a Christian for a few reasons. Mainly because I think there's an implied parallelism here. He's making, parallel means they run together. He's making Uh, a a statement about two different groups of people. Let the lowly brother, that is a Christian, boast in his exaltation. The implied parallel statement in the next verse would be, and the rich brother boast in his humiliation. So it seems like he's communicating to two groups of people. Secondly, we're going to find later in this letter that James does anticipate there would be some rich Christians. He anticipates that. He he expects that at several different levels. Now, he is going to talk later about um, unbelieving rich people. He is going to critique unbelieving rich people. But several things are going to happen. In chapter 2, James says this, what do you do if a rich person comes into your service? And, And this isn't just a what if. He's anticipating this at some level. And he talks about a rich person who's got shiny bling on, nice clothes, and says, if a jeweled nicely dressed person comes in, are you going to give them preference or not? 
Well, he, bases, he writes that because it's possible that that, and indeed likely that that would happen. He also, in chapter 4, addresses people who evidently know the Lord, but don't consider God's providence in their plans. They just sort of say, hey, we're going to go to another city, we're going to make money for a year, and we're going to make a profit. And he says, you, you need to be aware. You need to say, Lord willing. You need to be aware of God's hand in your plans. Statements that would make sense if he's addressing Christians. So I think there's a place to understand that even though this is a suffering people, there would be some in their midst that would have some means. And the warning about the transiency of their wealth that we'll see here applies to both Christians and non-Christians alike. So I think he's talking to Christians in this passage. Let the rich brother, implied brother, sort of celebrate or boast or glory in his humiliation. Now, We can be thankful that rich Christians are addressed because we are sitting in a room full of rich Christians. So it's helpful that the Bible is addressing us. See, here's what happens in passages like this. It's just so easy for us to say it doesn't apply to me because everyone, probably everyone in the room just assumes they're middle class, I'm guessing. Some are having financial hardship, but let's say, hey, I'm sort of in the middle. I'm not really poor. I'm not really rich. I'm just sort of somewhere in the middle. I don't suffer like the people in the video. By the way, that was not planned. We had this text for this day set for months. We had that video before I even knew the content of it. We just knew a video was coming for today for months. It just so happens that those came together. What a vivid illustration um, by seeing a level of suffering, which redefines poverty, I think, for all of us. When he, David describes the people as having nothing but their life and the clothes they're wearing is what he said at one point. That's poverty. That's extreme poverty. And no one in this room would identify with that kind of poverty by virtue of the fact you're here this morning. But we would also say that we're not rich, right? Rich people are always people that have more than I do. Rich people, they have a nicer car than me. They're rich. That's the standard. It, it, that, that's the standard. It's whoever has, you know, it's the same thing with certain moral issues or whatever. If they feel free to do that and I don't, man, they're liberal, they're licensed. If, uh, you know, that kind of thing. If, uh, on the other hand, if they don't do something that I feel free to do, man, they're legalistic. So I'm the standard of all truth. That's how we tend to live. We tend to view <laughs> everything through us. So we look at where we are and we say, okay, I know people that have more than I do. You know, I know people that make more than I do, so they're the rich. What does it take to be rich? Always a little bit more. There's very few people that would say they are the rich. It always takes a little bit more. The truth is that we really are the rich. And this passage and this statement in particular, I don't believe is geared for someone else. I believe, and maybe there's some exception in the room I'm unaware of, but I believe that it's geared towards every one of us. We get so used to our situation and our surroundings that we're just sort of blinded to the reality of both historic poverty and wealth and even today international poverty and wealth. We just, we just don't really get it until we see something like we saw this morning. And we say, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty well taken care of. This week, I was reading an article And uh, this was an AP article, and it was in the New York Times. This was not published by a North Texas city in in any way promoting themselves or speaking about their demographics. This was in the New York Times. And in the New York Times this past week, or at least that's when I read it. I didn't, didn't catch the date. But in the New York Times, there was an article that talked about sort of how the recession in our company, uh, in our country, is in creating a greater gap between the haves and the have-nots. And so they were surveying uh, cities in the country and uh, such. And in, I'm, I'm emphasizing this, in the New York Times, close to the bottom of the article, it said the following. Based on their surveys of all the cities in the country, among large cities, the city with the highest median income in the country was Plano, Texas. Highest median income of any city in the country. Now, there's some counties that have higher incomes, but particular large cities. You say, well, I don't live in Plano. Well, we feel sorry for you slumming it in Frisco in your squalor. Hope you make it, you know. 
<laughs> I don't live in Plano. Or I live in the other part of Plano. That was the, that was the median for all of Plano. And so unless you drive, unless you like drove here from, I don't know, some extremely impoverished area long distance away, we have to all identify that, even if your zip code's different. I mean, we're, that's our backyard, if not our front yard, if not our family room. That's where we're worshiping. That's where we are today. That's where we live. So that, that dose of reality is helpful, that we live either in or on the outskirts of or in the very near vicinity internationally, very near vicinity of the wealthiest city in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. So it's possible that we don't really, it's possible that we fit the rich category. I think it's possible. I uh, did a little research, and uh, I picked a profession. I picked public school teacher, honorable profession, and I think we would agree that public school teachers are underpaid. I think public school teachers, for what they do and the contribution they make and the investment they make in the next generation, should be likely paid better better than they are. But in North Texas, where we live, the average salary for a public school teacher is about $50,000. Starting salary is about $45,000, plus or minus, I think, in Frisco. But the average salary experienced in new teachers together is about, give or take, $50,000. And I think we would agree that a public school teacher is not poor, It's not entry level. It's not like sub-minimum wage or minimum wage. And I think we'd agree that a public school teacher is not extremely wealthy. We we would probably guess, I'm guessing, it's sort of a middle-of-the-road profession with regard, you know, honorable profession, highly esteemed profession, but middle-of-the-road profession with regard to how they're paid, an average of $50,000. If your salary or your household income is $50,000, your income is in the top 1% of all salaries on planet Earth today. The top 1%. That amount of money, and that amount of money places you in the highly privileged. So the public school teacher is not middle of the role. The public school teacher internationally, salary-wise today, is in the exclusive, filthy, rich department. And if you make more than 50000 75000 100000 200000 I don't know, if you make more than that, then you just sort of incrementally work it up. Like you're 0.5% or something like that of all people on the planet. It's just helpful to get a dose of reality every now and then. It's just helpful to read a scripture and say, whenever you see rich in the Bible, probably you could insert your name there. And whenever you see poor in the Bible, though you may have difficulty right now and things may be tight, I don't minimize that, but when you think difficulty and poor, we we probably have to watch a video or get on an airplane to know what that's really all about. Let the rich person glory in his humiliation. Why am I tossing out these kind of facts? Are you just trying to make us feel bad? No, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm just trying to kind of wake us up because I think we can all get very accustomed. I can get very accustomed to what is around us. So when he says to us to glory in humiliation, what does that mean? When the NIV says take pride in his low position, what is he talking about? Well, he's saying the same thing he says to the poor person. He says that we are to look beyond our means. The poor person look beyond their lack of means. The rich person look beyond our means. Don't take our identity from our material possessions. But recognize that our spiritual condition, our real condition apart from Jesus Christ, is that we are spiritually destitute. We are poor of spirit by nature. And the the challenge with material sustenance, the challenge with material wealth is that it gives the illusion that we're okay. The people in the video, no one's saying, we're okay. Take the aid back. We're doing just fine. No one is saying that. Everyone's aware of their need. When we have things, we're often, we're, we're blind to our actual spiritual need. 
And so we begin to think we're okay when the reality is before God, our existence, our nature, our personhood, we are desperately poor. He says the same thing to the rich and the poor. Get your eyes off the material things. If you don't have anything material, glory that you know Jesus Christ, you're rich. And if you have stuff materially, then you would benefit by getting in touch with your real nature. That regardless of what you drove to the meeting today, regardless of what you're wearing, regardless of what's in your bank account, spiritually apart from Christ, every one of us is dirty poor. We are blind. We are naked. We are terminally ill. We're worse than ill. We're dead, the Bible says. That's our spiritual condition. And having things has a way of causing us to be unaware of our great need for Jesus. See, here's the reality. The more we have materially, oftentimes we're less aware of what we need spiritually. When we have all we need materially, we're often unaware that we are greatly needy spiritually. That's why the Scripture speaks of riches as a potential. It doesn't have to be, shouldn't be for us as Christians, but has the potential of being a liability because it offers us a false security. I'm okay. I feel fine. Right? I, I don't... It's intimidating sometimes to share the gospel and to come across people that have things. You think, you look at them, you think, they don't have any needs. Whereas you see someone that's down and out and completely, as we saw this morning, completely suffering, it's much easier to take the gospel to them because you think, I see their need. But the person who has everything has the same need. Whether you've got a closet full of clothes or nothing but what you're wearing, your need is exactly the same. But that stuff masks our need at points. And thus the poor are not exalted as a special class. It's not as if God loves poor people and hates rich people. It's not as if they are somehow, you know, God's favorite in in some kind of particular way. But they do, the poor do often have a privileged vantage point because their physical condition is nearer their spiritual condition. And so often they're more aware of their need, at least as a starting place for Jesus Christ. They know they're dependent. They know they're needy. Rich people, on the other hand, and again, what's the definition of rich? If you've got lunch waiting for you at home or you're going to stop and buy it or whatever, we're we're talking about that kind. We have, we're okay. We're sustained. That, we don't see our need. We're not trusting God for lunch today. Now, someone may be here, but probably not. We're not trusting God for the next meal. We have some things stored up. And so often we don't see our real need. The poor are more aware of their need. So God doesn't love the rich better. God doesn't love the poor better. In the Bible, there are rich followers of Christ. There are poor followers of Christ. And we can praise God for rich followers of Christ because they fund so much of the ministry. Jesus was funded by people who had means. People in the New Testament had houses and were able to, the house that meets, the church that meets in your house, were able to gather people in a building. They were, they were able to send an offering to help the struggling church in Jerusalem because some people had some means. There are people, Zacchaeus is converted and gets rid of half of his means and throws, gives it away and throws a big party, but he's a person of means that comes into the kingdom. So it's not as if God just loves poor, hates rich, or something like that. God despises the action of trusting anything or anyone Instead of him, that's an idol for the poor and the rich, but somehow easier for people who have things. Before coming to pastor here, uh, our family was part of a church, and um, I had the privilege to lead a church in, a, in another area of material means, Southern California. And uh, we were in San Diego, and one of the benefits there was that we were on the border of Mexico. And so in a very short distance, we could get a dose of reality that takes a longer distance to get if you live here. But uh, we, we would go into Mexico, and we had a partnership with a sister church in Tijuana, Mexico, across the border that was a Sovereign Grace Ministries church. And we were able to do ministry with them various times and provide for them in different kinds of ways. And uh, while there is an urban environment that's, that's uh, you know, uh, 
that appears even almost somewhat middle class uh, right on the border. If you go past the border very far, there's some real poverty, and it feels like a two-thirds world area. So we went to this area. We had raised money in our church to take an offering, I believe, and we had purchased food. So we had bought beans, we had bought rice, and we bagged up all this beans and rice, I think flour for tortillas as well. So we, we bagged up all this food, and we had clothing that we had gotten from a clothing drive. And we went down there, and we went to this poor area where there was kind of these, this hill, these two hills that had shanties on them. They weren't cardboard. They were mostly kind of plywood uh, set up, some of them with dirt floors. So they were, uh, they were very poor. And uh, we just invited people down to this kind of area, open area at the bottom of the hill where we're going to give stuff away just to bless people and try to reach out and meet needs. And uh, so the church there set up their band, and they were playing music, um, kind of worship music and various other things as people were coming down. And there was a long line of people lined up to get food. And there was a lot of us. We didn't need everybody handing out food at the front. So we thought, well, what else can we do while people are waiting? And the pastor or someone from the church you know, basically suggested, you know, there's people here that may need healing. And these folks wouldn't have medical care or anything of the sort. So he said, how about if we just offered to pray for sick people? It's just something about it felt very, very kind of New Testament, you know, um, as opposed to maybe how we live a lot of our lives. And I'm very thankful for medical care. But nonetheless, so he just got on the mic and said, look, if you're here today and you have a physical need, uh, there's a group of Christians here, and they're going to pray and ask God to touch your body and heal you today. And just, we're just going to ask. And so if you would like prayer for healing, you know, come over here. And about half the people came out of the line. They were waiting for food. And they came out because they were desperate for someone to cry out to God and pray that God would heal their body. I thought, what a spiritual poverty that was represented. That Though many of them may have been believer, unbelievers, that there was a spiritual poverty that they were aware of a need for God that, that even went beyond a food giveaway to them to meet their needs and got out of the line and began to ask. We began to pray for folks, asking, God, touch my body. That would be very rare oftentimes where we are. Hopefully next Saturday that won't be very rare. When the prayer booth is there, hopefully folks will ask for prayer and admit their need and see their need for God. The poor often understand their helplessness. And that's why Luke 6, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's not saying, based on your net worth, you can get in the kingdom. So if you have a low net worth, you can be saved. That's a works righteousness. Everybody is saved the same way. By coming to Jesus Christ and believing in Jesus as our substitute, turning from our sin, turning to Jesus, and believing in him as our Savior. Everyone comes that way, dependent. I cannot save myself. I cannot contribute to my salvation. I am desperately needy. Everybody comes the same way, but the economically poor oftentimes have a, 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 have a closer understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit, what it means to be dependent, what it needs to be needy, what it needs to be childlike, what it needs to be helpless, and say, I cannot help myself. Okay, then you're a candidate for conversion at that point. You cannot help yourself. If you can help yourself, then you don't need a Savior, and you and your self-effort will perish eternally in hell. So there's... There is this sense of being aware. So, so should we not help people, you know, who are poor? Because should, should Noah have gone and helped those folks? Because really, if it's kind of blessed to be poor, let's leave them blessed. No, we, we should help people. He's going to make the point at the end of this chapter that the most vulnerable people in this society that he wrote to, which was orphans and widows, the most vulnerable should be cared for, that pure religion, pure religion is actually caring. So he, he does recommend, God does call us to care for those who have needs. The the catch is that as needs are met and as we grow and as we have things, as as our needs are physically met, how can we maintain a conscious dependence upon God? That's the thing. As our needs are met, do we remain consciously dependent on God? Riches may be a blessing to be used to glorify God, Actually, 1 Timothy 6.19 says not only to be used, but also to be enjoyed. There, there can be a blessing that we can glorify the Lord in certain possessions. They can also be used to leverage serving others and expanding the ministry of the gospel and reaching out and extending hospitality. So they can be used in various ways. But it is a test 
to see how we'll use use them. I I think it's fair to say it's a trial. He's talking about trials here, verse 2. And all of a sudden we're talking about the poor, and now we're talking about the rich. Is it possible that it's a trial to be prosperous? I believe it is. There is a certain nature of trial in prosperity. Matier, in his commentary on James, and we have this at the Resource Center if you want to buy a commentary on James, it's the one we're recommending. Listen to this. He wrote, The poor man may say he wouldn't mind swapping his problems for those of the rich, but the Bible is clear that the problems of prosperity are as keen as those of stringency. Indeed, the problems of prosperity, if anything, are a more insidious threat to a committed life with God. Prosperity prosperity is an insidious threat to a committed life dependent upon God. So, So how do we respond in all of this? If the rich person is to glory in his humiliation, he is to recognize his spiritual poverty and live as one who is needy. So how do we respond to that truth, that command? Should we all just feel guilty? I mean, oftentimes when anything about riches is talked about in the Bible, you know, we just kind of all go home just sort of feeling guilty. Ugh, kind of yucky when I got in my car. And I was complaining about this car, but it's actually pretty nice when I consider that the best transportation in the video I saw was a bicycle. Uh, and kind of feel bad. We go home and eat, and we think about people that don't have food. But by tomorrow we'll sort of forget about that guilt and we'll say, hey, how come he makes more than me? Hey, I, why didn't I get the promotion at work? And it all fades away pretty quickly, doesn't it? So should we just kind of work up some guilt and make everybody feel really bad and kind of walk out of here with our tails between our legs? And I don't think so. Should we maybe just uh, introduce a little legalism? That, that would be a source, is that we can just sort of say, okay, this is, this is sort of the rule in our church. You, you know, you have to... You can't spend more than this on that, or you can only drive this, or you, can't, you can only eat out this amount of times. We could just set up all kinds of rules that this is how our church honors God with these sort of standards. I don't really think that's what's in mind in this passage either. We, we could all give in to the fear of man, couldn't we? We could create a culture where everybody feels really guilty about having anything, and so then there's just this sort of sense of, what do others think about me? So like somebody from the church is coming over, hide the nice stuff. You know, quickly, go get that ratty sofa out of the garage and get the nice one and put it out there so they'll think we have old, decrepit furniture and thus are more godly, you know. Empty the pantry. We won't want anyone in the church to know that we have any food because we're living for the Lord and we're living at a very, very low level. So there's guilt, there's legalism, there's fear of man, there's asceticism, which is a philosophy that says, really, by, my, by suffering, I please the Lord by, you know, Uh, imposing upon myself exacting, strict, painful disciplines and deprivation that somehow I am glorifying the Lord more by placing these limitations on myself. That's addressed in the book of Colossians, for instance. And he says, no, that's really not what we should be doing. doesn't mean that some of us won't feel convicted by God to divest ourselves of some of our wealth. That certainly may be the case. But to live some kind of Willful role of poverty probably isn't the answer as well. The the answer is that we have an appropriate perspective on stuff and that we have an appropriate perspective on God, which is what James gives here. He says the stuff you have is transient. Verse uh, 10, he says, glory in your humiliation, your position of lowness, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away, the rich person. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. He's saying all the stuff you have is like a wildflower that's beautiful. It grows up, but then the heat comes, and it lasted very short, and it's gone, and it's faded, and no one sees its glory or its beauty anymore. And so are the things that we possess. They're temporal. They're transient. We don't take them with us, the Scripture says. So the rich, in the midst of his pursuits, will lose his pursuits if his pursuits are merely wealth. Wealth promises security, but there's none in it. It promises joy and life, but there's no joy and no life in things, in stuff. Life is in Christ and in Christ alone. 
And, and, you know, it's not just material wealth that blinds us from our need for Jesus. It's the desire for wealth that blinds us as well. See, it's possible to be blinded and not have a lot of great wealthy things on the scale of we look around and compare ourselves and say, hey, I don't have near what someone else has. But the desire for wealth is blinding as well. When, when we're seeking security in things, when we're seeking comfort in things, when we're seeking peace or joy or happiness or anything in things, when we're seeking those things outside of Christ, it's wrong. And many of us would say, well, I'm not greedy. I'm not just running around and seeking things. But you know what? Our, the pursuit of our hearts often shows up in our fears because our fears are sort of inverted. They show what, what we really want because we fear if we didn't have it, what our life would be like. So maybe we're not running with money-grubbing hands, gimme, 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 but our greatest fear is what if I don't have enough? Our greatest fear is what if I run out? Our greatest fear is what if I lose my job? Our greatest fear is what if I don't have adequate retirement? Our greatest fear, our greatest fear, and so really that, that fear reveals that ultimately my heart trust is in things rather than in God. That's blinding. That's blinding. How do we glory in our low position? How do we glory in our humiliation? Well, that's the million-dollar question, if you'll forgive the analogy. We glory in our low position by not glorying in what we own, the same for the rich and the same for the poor, not identifying our status with what we have, but identifying with Christ. We don't glory in what we own, but we glory in the one who owns us. We don't glory in what we have, but we glory in the one who has us. We don't draw security in what we possess, but we draw security in the one who possesses us. Jesus Christ, the one who created it all and owns us all, and one day will bring us to himself. Life is very short, and eternity is longer than we imagine. And Christ is our hope of glory and our hope of eternity. The rich and poor alike are called not to trust in stuff, to look beyond our status and to trust in God and to love God and to value God and to have our heart attached to God and nothing else. How do we do that? Well, we do that in a number of ways. One is we just on a daily basis ask God to reveal to us our need all over again. Give us today our daily bread. That's a daily prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, give me today. Show me my need, not only physically, but in my heart, Lord. Show me your holiness in the great distance I am from you. And yet show me how you've bridged that gap in Jesus Christ so that I treasure the Savior all the more. Treasure is a good word in, in this context. I treasure the Savior all the more because I see that you're everything to me. So it's daily Asking God for wisdom. God, give me wisdom to look at all that I'm going to see around me in this culture, in the richest city, in the richest country, in the history of the world. Let me see clearly. Let me see clearly and see what my real need is and how you've provided that. And help me to attach my heart and my hopes and my security and my peace in you today. That's just a daily prayer. You'll be tempted as soon as you drive outside of this uh, parking lot today. It's a daily prayer. And then we also can just release our grip on what we have. Whether we're poor or whether we're rich, we're all called to generosity. We're all called to generosity. Lord, I just loosen my grip on what I have. And Lord, I just say, use what I have. Help me to know how to use what I have to be a blessing to others. Help me to hold, give what I have freely. And, you know, it's really not a, ma- a matter of what your net worth is. Generosity is not a matter of your net worth. I know, uh, I know some people that are wealthy. And I say that because they have more than I do, right? So I know some people that are quite wealthy by American standards. And uh, they're some of the most, I'm thinking of a couple of people right now, some of those generous people I know. Always blessing, always giving, always welcoming, always giving this and that. And then I know people who have very little and they grasp what little they have with tight hands of fear and idolatrous security. So you can have a little and be an idolater. You can have a lot and be an idolater. But either way, we're called to live with open hands, freely giving what we have. And as we look forward, not only to giving in a couple weeks 
to support our international mission. We're, at the end of the year, going to give to support our local mission. On December 13th, we're going to have something called Commitment Sunday. We're going to have an opportunity to give so that we can build a facility over there in Frisco Square and reach our, reach our environment, reach our area. It's an open door for us. And as I think about that, it's not a building in the center of town that thrills me. It's what God's going to build in us in the process that thrills me. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if we as a people really lived by what this said? I mean, how countercultural would it be if we were a body of people who were so gripped by the gospel, so affected by God's grace that we were changed? And those who had a little received from those who had a lot, who sought to bless them and help them and care for them. And everyone sought to give what they had joyfully and freely, hilariously, gladly, because there is a profound trust in God who will meet all of our needs and take care of us. What if that was the experience we had, where people sacrificed and found God giving them more and sacrificed more? What kind of experience would it be if God changed us to be people who said, we're not concerned about our status. We don't identify by what we have or what we don't have. We don't identify by what our zip code or what our neighborhood is, what we, you know, what, what we have in the bank. This is not where we identify. We identify in Jesus Christ. And so if we have a little, we glory in our exaltation. If we have a lot, we glory in the fact that we're spiritually impoverished. We're really poor, but God has met us, and so now we're rich in grace and give what he's had given us. That would be a dream to have a people transformed, to have a people who are characterized by generosity and life and giving and community and care and meeting the needs of those who have needs both locally and and outside of our district, outside of our area as well. How great would that be? Would it be that God would be planting churches in very wealthy areas so that those people who've been given a lot would steward what they have for the glory of God? I, I don't think it's an unrealistic dream. I think it's the plan of God. It's the grace of God. So may the truths here grip our hearts to live in the freedom of this truth. This is a truth standing on its head, shouting out to us. It's standing on its head, and it says, The rich should glory in their need and celebrate the Savior who's met their need and be transformed by grace. It's a truth standing on its head. Boast in your neediness for Christ. Boast in the provision of Christ, boast in Jesus and in him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that you have provided richly for us in this room at a material level. And uh, we do pray for those in the midst who, for whom things are tight, Lord. There are some who need work in this room. There are some who are underemployed. And we pray that you would bless and take care of them, God. And there are others in the room that are doing fine. And we pray that you would cause every one of us, wherever we are, to not identify, not draw security, not place our hope in what we have, but in you alone. God, free us by the gospel. Help us to be more aware of who owns us than what we own, and help our pursuits be those of you and of your kingdom. God, as we think about all that's in front of us as a church, we ask that you would enable us to reach many people with the gospel, many folks who need you. We pray that you would, Lord, just meet our needs and then some that we may have much to give and much to bless. Make us a church that blesses others, we pray. Make us individuals that bless others. Thank you for the riches of grace today. And thank you that you've not only given us the riches of grace, but you've given us material means as well. So we celebrate you for that, and we ask that you would guard us from the temptations that surround, that we might leverage all that you provide for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.